Jesus, we need your help today. We need you to speak to us. And we need it to be clear. We need you to cut right through all of the distractions that we're bringing in here with us. We need you to cut right through all of the baggage that would keep us blinded from what you have to say. We need you to move in us. We need you to challenge us. We need you to critique us today. And as we lean into these words of your revolutionary sermon on the mount, and we begin this journey walking through those teachings, we want to be the kind of people who embody that, who are transformed by the power of your words, not just people who admire them from a distance, quote them every once in a while. We want to be the kind of people that are shaped by them and that are the living proof of the truth that you speak. Form that in us. Let us be those kinds of people. That's what we're begging and pleading for. Let us be those kinds of people. So your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today we are beginning this sermon series uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're calling it The Future of Love because we feel like the Sermon on the Mount is this unexplored frontier in so many ways for the church. All right, this unexplored frontier for Christianity, not because it's something that's unfamiliar to us, we quote it all the time, but because it's the kind of thing that Christians so often fail to live into. We fail to be transformed by these words. We do admire them, but we keep them at a safe distance from us. And the reality is, is that the culture around us feels the same way about it. When they look at Christianity and then they look at the words of Jesus, these revolutionary words where Jesus sits down on a hillside, opens his mouth and turns the whole world upside down through what he has to say. People sense this gap between what they hear from Jesus, what they read from Jesus and what they see in us. And it creates this chasm of disbelief and doubt that they simply cannot cross because of what they read and because of what they see and the distance between those two things. A Jewish rabbi writing about the power of the Sermon on the Mount and the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount had this to say about it. Here's his description of it. The history of Christianity is the story of the followers of Jesus trying to avoid and explain away his Sermon on the Mount. That's painful. Happy New Year, everybody. That's painful. But it's painful and it's sharp because even as we hear it, we feel the truth of it striking us. But once we start to open ourselves up to studying these teachings, and even more than that, we surrender ourselves to letting the words of Jesus study us and call out in us those places where there's the chasm and where there's the gap between what he said and who we are. 
once we begin to open ourselves up to that, we begin to experience transformation through the word of Jesus. Jesus, who is the word himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, who wakes this reality up in us and forms us into these kinds of people. These wild ideas that we find here that hum with revolution. This strange ordering of words that reorder the world as we know it. The unexplored frontier of the human experience. I want to go there. I want to live into that. And I have a feeling we have that deep desire as a church to be those kinds of people. To be a glimpse of it. Just a flicker of the reality that Jesus is speaking about here in his teachings. These teachings in many ways seem more ridiculous now than ever. When we read them and we look at the world around us, they seem more ridiculous now than ever, which is why we so desperately need them now more than ever. And the future belongs to those who live them out. Over these next several weeks, we're going to sit at the feet of Jesus, our teacher, and we're going to ask him and beg him and plead with him to challenge us, to critique us, and to reshape us. To look like him. And to look like the kind of people who live into these words and the teachings as we live into the way of Jesus. The counterintuitive, countercultural life that is surrendered to and embodying the way of Jesus is the most compelling evidence for the truth of Christianity. Again, it's that gap between what people read about Jesus and what they see in Christianity that creates this chasm of disbelief that they simply can't get across. Many of the chief, the chief objections to Christianity, it's not only philosophical and it's not only scientific, but it's also experiential. As people see the difference and they're begging, they're begging for the followers of Jesus to follow Jesus and walk into the way of the kingdom that he described. Here's what Jesus has to say in the, in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount in this section that's called the Beatitudes, where he begins to talk about what it means to live a blessed life. And when we hear that, when we hear Jesus talking about what it looks like to be blessed, we're like, yes, sign me up, okay? I want the blessing. I want to live the blessed life, okay? And so we start to lean into that, and it definitely perks, perks our, our ears, it gets our attention, until we begin to lean into what Jesus is actually saying here. Listen to this, what he has to say. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Here's how he begins this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. He begins in this way. It says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Can I get a revision to that, Jesus? No. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This beautifully backwards description of the kingdom of God that Jesus lays out right here. It just, it doesn't sit well with us when we hear that. It's not the kind of thing that we want to be invited into, but Jesus says this is what the kingdom looks like. And this is what the culture of the kingdom looks like. This is what the customs of the kingdom look like. This beautifully backwards way of following Jesus. In the chapter previous to this, in chapter 4, as Jesus is introducing this challenging thought of the arrival of the kingdom of God, the establishment of the kingdom of God through the arrival of Jesus. And he announces that. He announces the arrival of the kingdom in chapter 4. He begins to preach about it. And throughout the gospel of Matthew, Matthew is obsessed with the teaching of the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is about. Uh, Jesus mentions the kingdom of God 50 times in the gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven, 50 times in the gospel of Matthew, in a book that in most of your Bibles is going to turn out to be about 30 pages long. So one and a half times per page, Jesus is talking about the kingdom. It's a theme that you cannot escape. And Jesus says, I'm here to announce this. I'm here to inaugurate it. I'm here to establish it and to bring you into the kingdom. It's not simply a future hope. It's something that is here and it's something that is now through the work of Jesus. And there in chapter 4, at his announcement of the kingdom, here's how he begins. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That word repent is, is a word that's uncomfortable for us, but it simply means to turn, to turn away from the way I was living and to turn into a new way of life. And Jesus is showing us here as he lays out the Sermon on the Mount, this is what you are turning into. You're turning away from the way of the world and that the way that is established, the way that things are, the status quo of things, and you are turning into the way of the kingdom. And this is what it looks like. These beatitudes that he lays out here, this upside-down vision of what the blessed life looks like. Anybody ever heard of the author Kurt Vonnegut? Yeah. This provocative author who came to fame really in the 60s and 70s especially, and um, not a big fan of Christianity, all right? Often spoke about that gap and that chasm that we've been talking about. 
And yet he desired deeply to see it lived out in the world. The way that he talks about it. Here's one of the things that he has to say about the Beatitudes specifically. He says this. For some reason, the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes. For some reason, the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes, but often with tears in their eyes, they demand that the Ten Commandments be posted in public buildings. I haven't heard one of them demand that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, be posted anywhere. Blessed are the merciful in a courtroom. Blessed are the peacemakers in the Pentagon. Give me a break. That's what he says. Those are his words. Now, before we go any further, don't read that as a dig against the court system or the men and women who serve and defend our our country through the military. Don't see it as a dig against them. See it as a dig against us. See it as a critique of us. a chasm that people can't get across. The Beatitudes are a critique of the system and a critique of the way that things are, but they're also a compelling vision of the culture of the kingdom of Jesus, of these strange customs of the kingdom of Jesus. As Jesus goes through here and he begins to talk about what the blessed life looks like, Here's what we need to to understand. This word, it's a difficult word for us to connect to our culture, okay? This word, blessed. It's interesting. We uh, we actually started, we're starting this semester here uh, with the Sermon on the Mount and with this idea of the blessed life in the Beatitudes. We started last semester with Psalm 1 that echoes this same kind of thought and what the blessed life looks like. And this alternative vision of the blessed life. And Psalm 1 tells us that the blessed life looks like a tree planted by streams of water. Rooted, going into deep places, drawing from that strength, bearing fruit in season. Standing the test of the storm. That's what the blessed life looks like in Psalm 1. And now we get the echo of it here at the beginning of this semester through the Beatitudes. And this word blessed, in the, the, the most direct translation from this original language uh, in which it's written, the most direct translation into our language would be the word happy. Okay? But it just doesn't make the trip very well. All right? That's the most direct translation, but there's so much missing because of our cultural understanding of the word, of ha- of the word happiness. And there's a major disconnect between what Jesus is saying and the way that we view this idea of being happy. Okay, It just doesn't translate very well. We view happiness as the absence of trouble and pain and the presence of whatever it is that we want. Right? If I have this thing, if I get to this place, if I accomplish this, if I achieve this, if I accumulate this, then I will be happy. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about a life of ease where you get everything that you want. Have you ever um, 
been in a moment where you achieved something that you were really striving for, you were really longing for, or you accomplished something that you were really working hard to accomplish, or you accumulated something that you really wanted badly. Like for a long time, you were wanting this thing, and now it's yours. You have it. Have you ever been in a moment like that where you hit that point where you're like this? When I was back there, I thought this was the moment that was going to make me happy. And then you step into that moment and you have all of those things that you thought were going to make you happy. And then you come to that nagging and gnawing realization that you're still not happy. Have you ever had a moment like that? Be honest and raise your hand if that's you. That's definitely me. I've been there many times. On the reversal of that, have you ever had a moment where it surprises you, where it shocks you? You didn't see it coming, but just out of nowhere, all of a sudden, you look around at your life. You look at some of the relationships in your life. You look at what the Lord is working in your life, and you have this strange moment, not caused by anything that you purchased or accomplished or achieved or anything like that, but you just look around at the life that you have and you have this strange moment of contentment. And you're like, I'm blessed. I'm blessed by this moment right here. Have you ever had a moment like that? And it's shocking and it catches you by surprise and it's not caused by any of the things that you thought would bring you happiness, but it just surprises you. It catches you. And you're like, I'm content and I'm happy. And maybe it was a fleeting moment, but it's this moment that sneaks up on us. That's more of what Jesus is getting at here. It's a deep-rooted contentment. It's not caused by the surroundings of your life. But instead of it being brought to you by something that's around you, instead it comes up from this deep place within you. It's this deep-rooted contentment and this sense of, for lack of a better word, happiness. Because you found your contentment and a deep joy and a sudden revelation of what matters most in your life. It's a sense of gratitude. This is what Jesus is getting at. This is more along the lines of what he's getting at. This beautifully backwards vision of what the blessed life looks like. Now, the way Jesus describes this is a direct critique of the way we often view the best life. It's backwards to what we often see in this world. In our culture specifically, in where we live, in the time that we're in, we have a, a different view of what our personal beatitudes might look like. We say this. We say, blessed are the rich in resources, for they can construct their own heaven on earth. And in the midst of that, Jesus speaks. No, no, no. Let me show you a different vision. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does he mean when he's getting at that? When he says the poor in spirit, is he talking about like a, a kind of religious or spiritual kind of poverty? Or is he talking about a physical kind of poverty? Well, to the people that he's speaking to, he's talking about both. 
He's talking to his disciples who in the chapter before he came to them with that invitation of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he says to them, turn away from the life you have and turn into the life that I'm leading you into. And what does he say to them? Come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. He says this to the first disciples that he calls to follow him. Their whole livelihood is fishing. That's the family business. They're inheriting it. They're coming into that. That's their future. And Jesus says, come follow me. And it says that their response is they drop the nets on the shore. They leave them behind and they follow Jesus. They walked into a voluntary poverty and out of this career that was handed to them. That was theirs for the taking. And they walked into this following of Jesus. It doesn't mean that all of us have to like sell everything that we have or give everything that we have away. Jesus might call you to that. He challenged that rich young man to that, right? So he might challenge you to that. But it's not just about that. It's not just about becoming physically poor. Many of these people were physically poor. What it gets at is this, an utter dependence on him for all that you need. An utter dependence on him for all that you need. You've tried the other things and you know it doesn't work. But an utter dependence on him. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. To know that you desperately need him. And he's the only thing that's ever going to satisfy you. We say, blessed are the rich in resources, for they've constructed their own heaven on earth. And Jesus says, no, no. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. We say, blessed are the comfortable. Blessed are the comfortable because they are cushioned from the cries of the morning world around them. And Jesus turns that on his head and says, no, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Blessed are those who go through hell because heaven himself will walk beside them. And many of you have felt the embracing arms, the comforting arms of Jesus in the depth of mourning. And you've understood that even in that moment of terrible loss that you could have never imagined, you know that you have heaven himself with you and you know what it means to be blessed we we say this blessed are the strong for they will take what they want and jesus says no blessed are the meek because they will inherit the earth we think that the earth belongs to the strong and jesus flips that on its head. Anybody uh, putting uh, meek as a description of themselves on their next job application? Probably not. All right. <laughs> Probably not. It's not a virtue and a value that we honor in our culture. But Jesus does. And the kingdom does. And it doesn't just to mean to be soft and to be weak. It means to know where your confidence comes from. That your confidence isn't in simply what you can accomplish, but you can rest in the fact that your confidence is in him and that he is orchestrating things in, in, in ways that you can't do for yourself. And it fights against that temptation to take what you want 
And instead, it's living with these open hands of surrender, knowing that he will give you what you need. We say, blessed are the filled, for they numb the pain of hunger and thirst. Blessed are the filled, for they don't even have to know what hunger and thirst feels like. Many of you in this room know exactly what hunger and thirst feel like. And to you, Jesus says, you're blessed. You're blessed. Because in a very physical way, you get it. You get what it means to be hungry and thirsty for him. And to know that he's the only one who can satisfy you. We say, blessed are the scorekeepers, for they will never get taken advantage of. Nobody's going to ever take advantage of them, and they will always come out with a win, no matter what it costs. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, because they'll be shown mercy. And to give mercy is to lose. To give mercy is to lose. But Jesus says it's not losing because you understand how badly you needed mercy. And now you're quick to give it away to other people. We say blessed are the slick for they know how to work the system. And Jesus says blessed are the pure in heart. They'll see God. They'll see God. We say blessed are the division makers because that's how you keep the power. That's how you gain the votes and that's how you make the money. And you keep those divisions going so that you can profit off of it. And Jesus says blessed are the peacemakers because of the children of God. We say blessed are the powerful because to the victor go the spoils. And Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted. Those who are without power. Blessed are the persecuted. We say, blessed are you when people like you and love you from a distance because that won't cost you a crucifixion. And Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you, when people hurt you, when people are out to harm you because of me. Because that's exactly the way they treated the prophets before you. And as Jesus will tell us later, that's how they're going to treat him too. And to follow Jesus is to lay down our lives and to take up the cross. Here at the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, he lays out for us this compelling, upside down, and beautifully backwards vision of what it looks like to live into his kingdom, of what it looks like to repent from the way that we were headed into and to turn into a new way, the way of Jesus. That is countercultural, that is counterintuitive, and yet that leads right into the kingdom and is a way of expressing the beauty of his kingdom on earth. Here's here's something that we need to understand. One of the the commentators, a guy named William Barclay, he says this about the Beatitudes. The greatness of the Beatitudes is that they are not a wistful glimpse of some future beauty. They are not even golden promises of some distant glory. They are triumphant shouts of bliss, of a permanent joy that nothing in the world can take away that nothing in the world 
can take away. This isn't simply about some future reality. It's a glimpse of the reality that we live in right now. Because the kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of God is now. And Jesus is calling us to repent, to come follow him, to walk in the way of Jesus. And to live into this future vision that is now a reality through the power of Jesus. I want to close by showing you an image. This is the Beatitudes in one picture. We see in this one picture at the same time, we see the powerful and we see the powerless. We see the privileged and we see the persecuted. We see a cause that has no hope of succeeding because of the walls that have been built up against it. And yet, what is the future of this picture? These weak people with no power whatsoever walking through the middle of tanks and weapons. And they're the ones who win. It's this kind of courage and this kind of conviction and this kind of upside-down vision that captured the imagination of our culture, that pulled back the veil on the reality and helped people see the reality. And because of people like this, there's been a shift in our culture. We aren't there yet. We are not there yet. But it's a moment like this that became a catalyst for transformation in our culture. The vision of a different way. The vision of a different way. This is what the Beatitudes look like. And Jesus is calling us to follow him, to walk in the way of Jesus, even when it seems like this is absolutely impossible. There's no way. These teachings... Of Jesus seems so hard, but they're more than hard. They're impossible unless they are empowered by the transforming power of Jesus Christ. This is a picture of the Beatitudes. And Jesus is calling us to become a picture of the Beatitudes in the time, in the culture, in the place in which we live. And if we will live that out, it will become compelling evidence 
for the reality of who Jesus is. People are desperate for it. People believe Jesus. They don't believe us. They're desperate to see that reality played out in front of them. Jesus is challenging us to become a picture of the Beatitudes here and now. As we close today, we come around the table of Jesus. This king with all the wealth and resources of the universe who voluntarily became poor. This one who was invincible, who voluntarily became weak and vulnerable, who mourned so that we could be comforted. This one who held all the power in his hands, who voluntarily became a peacemaker. So that even though we had been the enemies of God, instead of him destroying his enemies, he loves his enemies and he makes us his children. This one who voluntarily is persecuted so that we might be reconciled. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. We come to his table today. And this image that he gives us of the love of God. And we share in this feast. Jesus on his last night with his disciples took the bread that was on the table and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken to make you whole. He took the cup that was on the table. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the salvation of the world. He gives us an image of what the love of God looks like. And as we embrace that today, he also sends us out with a challenge to become the image of what the love of God looks like. To become the image of this beautifully backwards kingdom of God. If you want to receive that and embrace that and become that today, then we invite you to come to the table and to participate in this grace of Jesus Christ. There'll be two stations, one on this side, one on that side. If you need a gluten-free option, that will be available for you here. Come down, tear a piece off of the bread, dip it into the cup, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come to the table.